Okay, welcome back. Hello, collaborators. Great to be here again with you today. You're listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, architect. As always, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to lend me your ears this next 30 to 40 minutes as we talk through the experience of collaborating with architects and realizing architectural projects. We also discuss the thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And today we're going to talk about life after DA approval. So in the evolution of the project, the realization of the project from concept design to being given the keys from the builder when the building is finished, we're at the stage now where we've received development consent. Approval from the development consent authority to develop. In the previous two episodes, we discussed some things relating to development consent. So now we're at the other end of that. We've received approval. Our design as documented is stamped approved. And go out and celebrate. Congratulations. This is a milestone stage. You should truly go out and get some champagne, some red wine, some white wine, some beer, go for a walk, a run, a surf, a massage, dinner with a friend, a holiday, whatever it is that you do to celebrate a win. And it is a win. And I'm not stressing this because it's an impossible task. If you listen to the previous episode, we discussed what's involved in this stage and work with your team, your designers, your architect, to see how you're going to get to this end. But a lot of work's gone into getting to this point. A lot of back and forth, a lot of debate, a lot of testing of design and potentially changing elements of design or developing elements of design. So it's a great thing to come to the other end of that with a stamp. More than that though, I've said in previous episodes that the assessment team the Development Consent Authority have a different focus, a different focus to the design team. The design team have a focus which is a design response to client's vision, to client's brief. Council are not assessing whether the application is defined in the documentation or the design defined in that documentation is a good response to the client's brief slash vision they have a different focus, as I've said in previous episodes, which is, is the design going to benefit the public domain or detract from the public domain? Is it in the public interest to support it? Will it result in lost amenity for adjoining properties? And they have rules and regulations they use to assess that. What I'm getting at, as I've said in previous episodes, is that's a different focus to whether or not it is a good design response to client's vision. In other words, they're on the different page. And as a consequence, they may say they're not able to support it. It needs to be withdrawn. It needs to be refused. In this case, that's not happened. They've stamped it approved. Let's go. And that's one of the reasons I'm celebrating because by and large, most projects, not all projects, most projects have an open 
platform now, I suppose, or, or the sky is somewhat the limit. You're not going back to an authority and having the time that took for it to be approved again, necessarily. The team you're going to work with now to get the point, the project from development application approval to getting the keys to the front door are all going to be on the same page as I've just described. Being the page that is a design response to client's vision. Now, not all projects, sometimes you've got a, another authority application because, I don't know, you're building a substation, you've got to go to some utility provider or maybe something to do with the sewer. So there are certain cases, but by and large, now we're working with a team that's on the same page. And that's fantastic, that's great news. It is getting more real, we are getting closer to being able to experience this design as realized. So in this episode, we're going to talk about what happens now. What's next? What do we have to do to allow the builder to start and go for it? So we have development consent. What we're going to talk about now is getting to a point where a builder can provide a price that we refer to as a tender. Tender means a the price, which is an offer, is in a fragile state. It's tender, it's not confirmed, it's an offer to accept or negotiate or change the scope or whatever to get it down before it becomes a contract price, which is the cost of works plus GST and the builder goes for it, which is a truly exciting stage to see your project, previous building uh, gutted, demolished, leveled, partly demolished, fully demolished, to see excavation for footings and basement levels. It, it's an incredible thing to watch. The site turns into chaos, and then from that chaos rises the structure of the new or the extension that relates to the new. And from that, somehow these craftspeople, these artisans finish the project and make this incredible jewel or space that is the design as realized, ready to occupy. It's a special, special time. The breaking ground moment is very special. So we need to obtain a price. But before we do that, let's just talk about authority approval for a second, because can we build? We've got development consent, but can we start building? Well, with development consent comes conditions. Conditions of approval. And what are those conditions? What's the extent? I can't say with certainty for every project, every council, every location across the area I work, which is New South Wales, Australia, work through that with your design team, your architect. Be particularly cautious of a condition that might say something like, further documentation is required on a particular matter, and that documentation is to be submitted to council for approval prior to works commencing. They're the ones you wanna get on top of as soon as possible because not sure how long council will take to assess that. Usually it should be a lot quicker because it's a smaller aspect, a much, much smaller aspect of the development. It should be quicker to assess that than the overall application, but get on top of those first. However, there is one condition that every project will have every time. I welcome anyone to dispute this as to whether there's an occasion where you wouldn't see this condition, but I've seen it for every project I know of and have spoken about with colleagues over a 20 year period of practice. And that's a condition that looks something like this. No works, 
meaning construction works, and for some councils in brackets, including demolition, close brackets, can proceed until a construction certificate is obtained. So you have development consent approval to develop subject to satisfying conditions. And there's a condition that speaks to what's required prior to you starting construction. And that's obtaining a construction certificate. So what's a construction certificate? It's an application to an authority where the design is defined in more detail now describing what is going to be built. Instead of a wall on a floor plan shown as a solid hatch, we show the wall build up, cladding to the outside before all the elements between the outside cladding layer and the inside layer. Or if it's double brick, what that looks like, if it's partly concrete, what that's lo that looks like. And the same for floor, roof, we're defining all the elements in more detail, ready or demonstrating what is going to now be built. Previously, we showed the development, the idea, not detail as to how that's going to be built. And we need to provide certificates confirming compliance with certain standards relating to building design, building use. We package all that together, submit it to an authority. That authority is called a principal certifying authority that can be private. It can be a division of council. And important to note, you might be saying, no, not another authority application. Keep in mind that whilst it takes longer or a bit of time to develop the documentation to describe all those components, including structure and how, not how, sorry, what is going to be built, what it's going to be made of, because we're coordinating multiple disciplines and trying to resolve various things. The time taken to assess if all the information there is far less than a development application. Around 10 to 15 days, depending on the project, the extent of information, whether any other information is required. So it's nothing compared to the development application assessment. Now, longer story for another time. The construction certificate process is a very good topic to work through because when I say safety standards, what are we talking about? What can your architect do? What design is involved in responding to these safety standards? Because this is all design. It's all a design exercise. How are we going to respond to those safety requirements via design? Great question, but this is a little bit out of sequence. As I said, we're talking about a tender price. To get a construction certificate, you need a price. To get a price, you need a builder. To get a builder that can give a price, you need a tender. And you need to define the documents so as for the builder to be able to work out that tender. So you're not going to CC first. Because once you have CC approval, you can start work within days. And that's not going to make sense if you don't have a price, let alone a builder. So the first thing we need to do is document for tender. In another episode, we'll talk about getting to the end of the tender, being happy with the price, locking that builder in and going to get construction certificate. Today, I want to talk about getting a tender, getting a price. Okay. So we're going to talk about a couple of design examples relating to this stage, which is what we call tender documentation, which is an effort to describe the design in more detail to be able to obtain a price from a builder. 
But I just want to go through a couple of frequently asked questions, FAQs, or frequently made statements. I just made that up, FMSs, that my colleagues and I experience at this stage. Okay. And I'm going to list them all and then I'm going to go through them briefly. I want to spend a bit of time talking through some design example stories. So, can the builder price off development application drawings and documentations? That's number one. Number two is if the answer to that is not really or maybe or it's not ideal, how do we define things better? I.e. what additional information do we need to provide? That's point two. Point three, do we have to define everything? Point four, why do we need to tell the builder how to build? Aren't they the experts in construction? And the last point before some design examples is potentially a controversial point. I recognize that. I want to explain that I'm putting these ideas forward merely to provide some insights. Everyone has their own path, their own way to realize projects. I respect that. But this last one comes up a lot and it's, I don't need to define things beyond the minimum, if at all. I'm okay for the builder to make it up on the run with me and me work it out on site with the builder. Okay, so five points. Let's go back to the first one. Can the builder price off DA drawings? Well, as I implied by point number two, it's not ideal, possibly, if the development application drawings has some dimensions on them. Different architects work different ways. Dimensions requires a level of resolution in regards to thicknesses of elements and structure and the like, which may not be the case at the development application drawing, so I don't go that way, nor do many of my colleagues. But if you have dimensioned, then the builder could provide a price, but what's that price going to reflect? In other words, because you've not defined the buildup of components and the interface of elements within rooms, external corners, how they're defined, how elements meet, in other words, detailing. Detailing is how different surfaces intersect, a wall and a ceiling, a wall and a floor, different materials meet, tile meets timber. If that's not defined, then the builder's gonna make assumptions and those assumptions may not align with the design vision. That's point number one. Point number two is that if you're going to more than one builder or even to a builder to get them to test the market, if you've not defined all the elements, when those builders come back, or when those builders' subcontractors come back with prices, they're all going to make allowances that are different because we've not defined things. And as a consequence, when you get the pricing, it's not going to be what we call apples with apples. You might find that because you've not defined the window system, the window operation, the window thermal performance, that one builder's window contractor or one builder with their window contractor, if there's multiple tenders, will have a price that might be, I don't know, 15,000 and another one 50,000. And how do you reconcile that to work out what the actual scope should be if you've not defined it? That's going to be really challenging. 
So that's not a great idea, nor is it a good idea if we truly believe in this design exercise that everything is designed and we don't want to leave things to chance. I'm gonna come back to that in another point. So can we price off DA drawings? Yes, we're not gonna know what we're getting and it's not a great way to practice if you're going to multiple builders or that builder is going to multiple subcontractors, which is the case most often. Two, if not, and this statement alone implied that pricing off DA drawings isn't great. So if not, and I've said not or not really, how do we define things better? What additional information do we need to provide? Okay, so I've had situations where I know of colleagues and clients and relatives and others that have done an exercise that I refer to as point and build. Now, a site manager I work with who is fantastic, he made a point that carpenters, the builders are quite visual people. You know, they're using their eyes and hands to build things, they're seeing what they're building. And so if you're going to do a point and build exercise where you have a material and you describe a corner condition or you describe a window condition or a floor to ceiling junction or where the lights are going to sit or how the door's going to operate in words, either written on page or described by pointing and building, the reality is that what you describe and what the builder interprets probably don't align. And the expectation isn't going to be met. And if the expectation's not met, that's going to lead to disappointment, conflict, and anything but an ideal situation. So we need to describe things and we need to describe things visually. We need to use our objective language that is drawings, plans, sections, elevations, and then zooming in and describing interface of elements in, in more detail having a, what we call a schedule, schedule of finishes, schedule of selected fixtures and finishes, taps, kitchenware, door handles, light fittings, and a written performance specification. And that is a bundle that you give to the builder to define the design. And when I say define it better, as I said before, instead of a wall, just being a solid hatch with no description of what happens between the outside and inside layer, we show more lines to indicate the buildup and where the structure is. Same with the floor, same with the roof. And we're doing that so as to avoid uncertainty. We're doing that because we want to define the design. Even if the builder has been there from concept design, or even if the builder is the client, they're not necessarily going to be building every element. They have a team, they have site managers, leading carpenters, they have joiners, they have plumbers, they have electricians, and Unless the builder talks to every single one of them to describe the point and build situation, and then you've got the issue of potential Chinese whispers or lost in translation or whatever you want to describe this situation being a communication issue, if there's a drawing for them to have and for them to know what they're going to do and any questions they have, you work through those questions, that's a much better, clearer way to work. Now, the other thing to note is that you've got to remember that these builders, one of their talents is to coordinate people to come on a given day to do something. You think of situations where you've booked a plumber or an electrician or someone related to a utility service and they say they'll be there between nine and six next Thursday. And by and large, that doesn't work with your schedule, but you know that they're hard to get there, so you leave a space. 
Well, a builder has that situation for multiple trades. So you want that trade to be able to come in and for the builder to be able to say, this is what we're going to do on that day so that they can do their work, move on, and it unlocks the next stage, the next trade. So that's what we're doing and why we're defining things better. So how do we define things better? Additional layers of information on the drawings and other documentation so that the builder knows what to build. Do we have to define everything? No, you define what you want to see or what you want to look a particular way. If you're not fussed as to how it looks, that doesn't mean it's not going to be built. It just means that you're not going to know what you're going to get. So if you don't define, describe, detail the way a wall meets a ceiling, the builder will make an allowance, as I said before, and you may or may not be happy with that allowance. So do you have to? No. Work with your team to see how far things go. Why are we telling the builder how to build? Aren't they the experts in construction? 100%. The documents don't tell the builder how to build. They tell the builder what to build. That's what we're doing here. We're telling the builder what to build when we want it to be a particular way. There's no document, no drawing that says, place your workbench over here with a circular saw attached to a power point in this location with temporary power connected here, wear this tool belt, wear this hard hat, wear this set of boots, hold your drill a particular way. There are occasions where work health safety is something that we, is critical and we need to define in, in a particular way particularly when there's things that have never been built before or rarely built before. But even then we'd work with a team, a building team to see what the best methodology is. The architects design, and so the builder doesn't design. The builder builds, so the architect doesn't build. The architect has knowledge on how to build and knows when something's not being built well, as does the rest of the design team. And the builder can observe when a design is not in their mind up to scratch or potentially worth challenging reviewing. But from the ground up, the builders are building. From the ground up, the architects are designing. So we're not telling the builder how to build, we're telling them what to build. The last point that I said was potentially a controversial one. It's this point relating to, I don't need to define things beyond the minimum if at all. I'm okay for the builder to make it up on the run with me. So all these other examples I've said where defining the design in more detail because we want it to look a particular way. And some people might say, well, I don't need to do that. I trust the builder. I trust the builder's design sensibility. That's okay. I respect that. I really respect that. These podcasts are an effort to provide insights to provide an alternative thought, to put a different spin on certain things. And so in this case, I just want to ask a couple of questions or raise some points. I love my Apple products. I've been doing a bit of a dive into the rise of Steve Jobs and Apple in what's called the second act with Apple. There's a fantastic movie with Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet about that, some of his um, 
press conferences where he releases Apple products. I read a biography recently and I've come to truly appreciate the history that we've lived through in the rise of the eyes, the iPhone, the iPad, the iPod's gone now, iTunes. And I appreciate when I look at my Mac and my iPhone that I'm looking at now, that there's a level of design detail. And many will say that's what separates Apple from other products. Simon Sinek's got a great TED talk on this, as I've mentioned in a previous episode. What would my Apple Mac look like if it didn't have the rounded corners? If it didn't have corner-to-corner glass on the monitor? The particular user interface. I'm looking at the keypad, keyboard, sorry, and the area around the keypad. It's seamless metal near the trackpad and the like that turns the corner without any junctions, any screws until the underside. It looks seamless. And that's part of its design. That's a detail. Same with the iPhone. What would it look like without the rounded corners? What would it look like if it wasn't wafer thin? I'm so conscious of how thin my iPhone is. I've got a protective device over it, which is actually EMF protection as much as protecting the iPhone because I'm conscious of electromagnetic fields, but that's a different story. I have an emotional response to that design and it is designed. Now that's Apple Mac, iPhone. Let's talk more examples. Let's talk about clothing. Let's talk about sporting equipment, shoes. If you're a basketball player, Nike products, Michael Air Jordan products. If you're a surfer, bodyboarder, what type of wetsuit? If you're into training of some other description, cars. I loved my Audi A3 because of some of the detailing to the interior and other components. I now have a Mazda, a Mazda 3, which I love and it gets me places, it's, it's great. But the level of design detailing and therefore the emotional response, the connection, the enjoyment I get from the use when compared to my Audi is less so. You think about all of those and how long they're in our lives and the decision we've made to connect to that design and how long I'm using, computer's not a great example, but particularly clothing, wetsuit, shoes, other elements. Think of how long you're using those when compared to how often you're turning on a light and seeing the quality from that light, seeing the way the window relates to the wall. I'm looking at a window in my study here and I don't have a great connection with the way that window is relating to the wall because I find it a bit busy. It's an ordinary architrave. Does it work? Yes. But I like my space where I work to have a sense of calm and to have some other components to it. So that's not responding to my vision. I didn't design it. I wasn't involved in the design of it. I inherited the design. Other examples, your front door, how you turn the handle, how the front door looks every day that you come home. The gloss levels on your wall, the paint colors on your wall, the finish and junction details between wall and floor. How long am I sitting here? Are you sitting here? Are you watching the quality of natural light, air, looking at wall surfaces? Like we're talking for a house, years. This is the place where you want people to eat and celebrate your dining offer. This is where you're teaching people 
to get this great education, treating people for health services, giving people an experience when they're having a night out. And at home, if you're working from home in particular, looking at these surfaces, using these areas, using the kitchen bench and the like every day for how long as your family expands, as your family contracts, as you get pets, as you get kids, as elderly move in or out, whatever the condition may be, where you're having parties, dinner parties and the like. And you're saying that you don't mind how that looks, that you're happy for that to be whatever it is, that the time, emotional, energetic and financial investment is so high, you're okay to not add to that layer to comment on what it's going to look like, to work through that, to define that and test it against precedents and images and three-dimensional studies, etc. I I challenge whether that is the greatest use of your investment. I find it remiss to think that okay to spend this time and level of engagement with certain products, devices, clothing, other utilities but not something that you use so often as the space you work or live in. I find that unusual. And here is an opportunity for you to engage with your design team, with your builder, and come out the other end knowing what you're going to get and being proud of it. I'm not saying you're not gonna be proud if you don't define it before that happens. I'm just offering some insights. And so I challenge that. And I completely respect anyone that's going a different way. But what we're doing here is we're defining the design in detail for a builder to understand what is going to be built because we want to know how it's going to look and that allows them to be able to price it. And when we price it, we can review where we want to go. All right, so some of those FAQs, FMSs, FMSs, frequently made statements, now completed. Let's talk about design. Let's talk about some design components related to tender documentation. So I want to split this in two ways. I want to talk about building shell and I want to talk about building fit out. Now I'm going to talk about building fit out in another episode. Building shell is all the components that go together to keep the bad weather out, to let the good weather come in, to make the building stand up and allow it to be a space that you can insert interior elements. So we're talking the roof, the gutters, the window interfaces, the internal walls, the build-up of the walls, the structure coordination, the drainage coordination, on and on. When compared to things that could be stripped and the shell remains. So kitchen, kitchen fittings, fixtures, bathroom fitting fixtures, staff room fitting fixtures, cabinetry, which we call joinery, etc., etc. So that I'm going to put in a different episode. Today, we're going to talk about the building shell. And I'm going to talk very briefly about a couple of examples of design development that came up for the Bondi Beach house, which is a project of mine that's nearly finished. And there's so many components I thought about that we could talk to. Like, for example, there's a cantilevered awning to the rear of this property, which is a semi-detached house meaning one wall on the boundary is shared with an adjoining neighbor. And on the underside, there's a little gap, which allows external access to the rear of the property without having to go through the house. 
At the end of the property as it faces the backyard, there's an awning and that awning cantilever is three meters. So working through the structural design of that cantilever, which needed column closest to the line of the sliding doors that form the external facade, and to achieve backspan, another column away from that, as I've mentioned before, and structural engineers will jump on this, the rule of cantilever is two-third backspan, one-third cantilever. So for two-thirds, the overall length, you need to have a portion going back, as in supported off columns, and then the last third is the cantilever. So reconciling all of that and coordinating all of that was an achievement because we wanted those columns allowing the backspan to work to be hidden in the wall. We didn't want to express them. We didn't want to see them. We didn't want them to end up just appearing in this space that we wanted to seem seamless or create as seamless. So that was a design exercise that we had to work through with the design team because we wanted the interior to feel like all surfaces aligned. Skirting was flush with wall. Wall met the ceiling with a very subtle detail. Very few things on the ceiling, seamless, open, giving a sense of scale and drama to a space which is seemingly a little bit smaller because it's a semi-detached house. So we're doing everything we can to make this feel as big as possible. And one of the ways is working through that cantilever. And there are so many other examples, but one I wanted to end the episode on is quite a special one. And it speaks to the idea that we're responding to client's vision brief, but sometimes the client can have a vision and be involved directly, directly involved in the design development of the response, as in hands-on. So on this particular project, these clients previously lived in well, a house in Glebe. And one of the main living room spaces, one of the walls in the living room space has face brickwork, which means you can see the brickwork, it's expressed. It's not, it doesn't have sheet over, it's not rendered, it's not painted, it's expressed. And the client, a painter, artistic painter, was very keen to have components of that facade have bricks that project out forward in a pattern that he worked out. And the pattern was supposed to emulate what, he, what was his interpretation, his adaptation of a painting by a famous modern painter called Piet Mondrian and that painting was Broadway Boogie Woogie. Now, Piet Mondrian was a painter from the Dishti movement, and you might recognize his paintings that predominantly white canvases with a dramatic line of red or blue or yellow or a square of red or blue or some geometry like that, but very minimal components reflecting his interpretation of a city or setting or whatever in an abstract way. And Gavin, the client, wanted to replicate his last painting. Now to do that, we had to respond to that vision by developing, defining the design. So drawing up the whole room elevation at a scale of about one to 20, big A1 page and Gavin colored in bricks that he wanted to project. And then that was given to the bricklayer. The bricklayer worked up the wall. And even then at some points, Gavin said, actually tweak that one just ever so slightly. Very, very minimal components. Design keeps going to the end. We like to avoid macro decisions and macro changes at that construction stage, but it happens. And that's the beauty of keeping your design team together and working with a design team to allow that to happen. And it's this special wall actually went further up the wall, it went around a 
void. And now he looked on it every, he looks on it every day as this wall that he had a vision for a design response to develop that design response with his team. So for Bondi Beach House, we wanted to find the Broadway Boogie Woogie wall. And we were getting into the tender documentation and a lot of great things were coming up that we were working through, but time was getting away from us. And I was looking at the front door design, front door design being a security door made of metal with a insect screen behind it. We often colloquially say, colloquially say that it's a fly screen, but we want to keep out more than flies. Mosquitoes can really break your heart. And so I was developing the design for this and I presented it to Gavin and I can see that he wasn't keen on it. I could see that he wanted something else. And the design in my defense was elegant, but he wanted something else. Now it was steel framed with steel components. And so this is the security door behind the solid core door. The solid core door is, is solid and the last line of defense against disruptive weather and security. And in front of that, we've got a steel door with an insect screen. Some people use aluminium, some people get proprietary. We wanted this one to be custom. And so the design was 10 by 50 mil flat plate perimeter. So 10 mil is about the thickness of my index finger. And then it went back 50 mil, which is about the width of my hand when I close it to make a wave sign or a high five. And that was the perimeter. So about one meter by two meter high, sorry, 2.8 meter high door, and then verticals left to right. So the intermediate divisions were made of the same material, this same 10 by 50 flat, with a gap of about 100 mil. So maybe left to right, there was nine verticals. And I presented that to Gavin and he had this look, he's, he's, he's not one to be shy from when something presented doesn't meet his requirements. And he smiled and said, I saw some beautiful steel detailing to some of the doors we saw in Japan. They'd recently been to Japan, he and his partner Suzanne. And I said, great, can you show me those photos? I knew straight away that I had to come up with something else. And that's fair enough. This is a response to client's vision and that vision is developing with a focus now on detailing on the front door, not the size of a room that is the front room, but the front door. Now they couldn't find the photos and I thought, well, okay, we're talking elegant steel detailing, more expressive than the one that I'd shown, which whilst elegant was not expressive per se. And I knew that Gavin and Suzanne liked Italian art and architecture. So I thought I might put to them a steel door designed by one of my favorite architects, Carlo Scarpa, who designed a front door to a space called Corini Stampalia in Venice. And this grill that abuts the canal allows water to flow through it, air to flow through it, doesn't have an insect screen, but it is elegant. Scarpa is a master detailer, incredible detail. If you want to look at the idea of detailing being something that can be expressive, artistic, really add to the overall feel of a space, look at Scarpa. His knowledge of industry, his knowledge of detailing is incredible around the 1960s. And I emulated that. I took the proportions of that grill and, and appropriated them to the size of the front door based on my assessment of the original. I had no drawings of original, so I appropriated it. And I put it to them for consideration and they were really excited about it. 
So I said, let's take this further and together we tinkered. We looked at the detailing, we looked at the components, we shuffled some things around. Now to describe the door as it looked when we sent it to the builder for budgeting, it's a one meter wide door, as I said, 2.8 height. Instead of the vertical, sorry, the divisions left to right being 10 by 50 flats, we took that assemblage, that composition and rotated it 90 degrees. So the door's still rectangular portrait format, but the divisions are now landscape. They're horizontal bands that run top to bottom at a space of about 100 mil. But Scarpa had capital T's between the horizontal. They look like these T profiles. So the bottom vertical of the T was about, maybe I can't remember the numbers, but say 60 mil in 10 by 50 flat. Then we turn 90 degrees for the horizontal of the T or the middle horizontal of the capital T. And it's made of solid cylindrical prism bar. So a solid piece of steel. This is all solid steel, only this time it's cylindrical, not rectangular prism. That ran for, I don't know, maybe 80, 100 mil. And then it goes up again with another 50 by 10 flat plate to form the last part of the T. And then you mirror that and you've got a T profile and you array that all the way up the top. And there's other components relating to the handle and protection around the handle and the internal snib. But we were quite excited about this. And lo and behold, when we sent it to the builder for pricing, it didn't meet the budget. So we had to tinker and do what we call value engineer and strip things away. But that was all done as a design consideration. Yeah, we didn't just say, okay, let's forget it and go to a standard door. Let's work through what the options are. Let's test some alternatives. And then it did get priced and that worked and then it was fabricated. And the day, sorry, the week before it was going to be sent to the hot dip galvanizers from the fabrication factory, the workshop, the, the fabricator, the metal worker, who was an incredible artisan, great team, we went to their workshop to review it prior to it being sent to what we call the hot dip galvanizing workshop, where it's, it's, it's put to a situation or it's, it's bathed and galvanized, it's dipped in galvanized, and that adds a protective layer to the steel. So this was our last chance to say, okay, what do we think? Can we, is there any components we're not happy with? Now we're not going in there to change the whole size or the whole proportion, we're just doing that final check. And we did, Gavin, Suzanne, the builder, me, and, and the fabricators. And it was great, we looked at it from every angle, we tested the way it would work and open, and we were about to leave, but Gavin sitting there, he saw a component that didn't work. He thought the proportions of one aspect weren't great. So we wanted to review that. And we debated it, we had dialogue. In the end, the fabricator said, look, I'll just move them because they're just tack welded. Then it's an easy enough weld to grind off and reposition these components. And we did, and Gavin loved it. And that was what was sent to the galvanizers. And this door is going to be this front door that has a story, a story that relates to Gavin and Suzanne's vision. And that vision had a design response that they also contributed to, like literally were on the tools, drawing, testing, prodding, working with the architect and other team members, right through to the point where it was fabricated. Every day they come home and they see this door and they use this door, it's going to have this story this story relating to the development. The development as defined during the tender documentation period for the building shell. Okay, 
That was the front door. So many other examples like ceilings and window operations and light positions and downpipe locations and material qualities, external finishes. That one is a special one that I wanted to talk through in this episode. Okay, so that's it. That is some insights on this tender documentation stage where we're defining the design in more detail for the builder to know what they're building, to appreciate how they might go about building it, which is for them to work through, in order for them to provide a tender price, which is an offer for us to consider, agree to, lock in, and then move forward. Next episode, we're gonna zoom into the interior. Until then, thank you so much for listening. If you thought this episode was useful or could be beneficial to a friend, colleague, whatever, please do share it. I welcome you to put a review on the platform wherever you're listening or subscribe, it really does help. Until then, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen in. And I look forward to presenting things to you next time. You've been listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. See you soon.